Whether it's for work or play, we rely on home internet so much these days. Being connected and staying connected has never been more important. So if you want reliable internet bought you at speed, switch to Aussie Broadband. It only takes a few minutes to sign up and their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Find out more at aussiebroadband.com.au. T's and C's apply. Thousands of Aussies trust Aussie Broadband to keep them connected to the world, even when they're on the go. Because as well as reliable home internet, Aussie Broadband also offers flexible mobile plans with super generous data allowances and no locking contracts. Their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help you make the switch. It only takes a few minutes. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Search Aussie Broadband Mobile to find out more. T's and C's apply. This week on the show, we have 300-game Port Adelaide champion and broadcasting beast... Kane Corns. Kane is a polarising figure in the media landscape and he's often made big calls that have split the footy community. It was a fascinating chat with Kane. He was so open, honest and vulnerable. We explored his AFL career and the obsession with being the best that ultimately took away from the joy of the game, winning premierships under Choco Williams, his transition into the media, dealing with Twitter backlash, relationships with former teammates and his big plans for where he wants to go next. Love this chat with Kane. He was so generous with his time and I cannot thank him enough for coming on the show. Hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And don't forget, if you like the show, make sure you're subscribing, following, liking, reviewing, sending to your friends. It all helps so much to help grow Dylan Friends. Let's go. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast. Many ways I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Tears. Tears. Strength. I'm like, I run. She's like, yeah. everyone runs. I'm like, but does everyone go to the yeah. Olympics? <laughs> They're sitting there meditating, going, oh my God, I think I'm meditating. How this is for meditating? It's like, <laughs> I had a Wu-Tang call. I was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. Just love it's it. knuckle puck time. Yeah. It's like, it's like, <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Kane Corns, welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast, my friend. You is, this is big for me. Um... I'm very excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to be here. I, I, apologies, it's not in person. We had uh, correspondence. We had this big plan of doing it in person when I was over in Victoria, of course, everything. I got halted there, but this is the next best. And yeah, as I said, I'm, I'm honoured that you asked me to come on. Mate, thanks so much for making time. I, I know how busy you are. It's it's actually incredible. You you have to be one of the busiest men in, in footy at the moment. There's not a night on, on television, on radio, on, on a, reading a, the Western Australian column that I'm not seeing Kane Corns in the news. What, what's life like for you, mate? You, you are extremely, extremely busy. Yeah, it, it is busy. Look, I, I love it. I'm a bit of a workaholic and um, do thrive off you know, working. And I, I guess, as you know, it's about creating content, basically. As, as silly as that sounds, you're always thinking, what am I going to say next? Or you're lying awake, you know, what's the angle going to be tomorrow? What's going to get a reaction here? What am I passionate about? So whilst you, you see and hear a lot in the media, I think behind the scenes it's, you know, it's, it's just as full on in your mind more so than anything about you know, trying to come up with an idea and try and discuss and get the fans um, engaged and, and willing to join in conversation with you. Love it or hate it and they will get that as long as there is a reaction and you're, you're saying what you believe. So, look, I love it, mate. I, I feel fortunate to be still in the industry. Um, I do owe a lot to, you know, the SEN business and probably Craig Hutchinson, who identified something in me a long time ago. I'm sure we'll get to where it all started and how I got into it, but love what I do. Yeah, you do, mate. And you do it better than anyone, to be honest. The, the way... You- you go about it and you, you do make these headlines, which, as you said, we'll touch into the intricacies of that later. But something you just mentioned there that, that really stands out with me um, when you talk about content creation 
And I suppose transitioning out of the game now, we had a you know polarizing, um, definitely a different careers per se. Used was three hundred games. Mine was sort of uh, one quarter of that. But I think now, do you see that media landscape turning into your game day? Like you said, you you do all this prep, all this work goes in behind the scenes, and then the podcast or the or the radio or the interview is actually where you get to enjoy it. Like I don't think people understand how much work actually goes into content creation behind the scenes because. This for me, like, and I know it might be the same for you, but I think you just rock up, you go on TV, you do your thing. There's so much stuff that actually goes behind there that isn't as fun and isn't as enjoyable. And that's why I love the different, like, uh, and I love what you do because there's different avenues to doing everything. I mean, and you've tapped into a, a new world and you've done it better than anyone as well. But to get to that point, I always said sort of footy is a great metaphor for life because you have a few highs, very few though, very few highs. You have a lot of lows, you have challenges, you have adversity and injury. So your footy career is always almost mirrors what happens in life. Yeah, there's there's some good times when you have some ecstasy and you know, you're having a holiday or whatever it is, whatever brings you joy. But there's a lot of stuff that's you know, not a lot of fun. That's the same as a footy career. So for me, I've used a lot of how I prepared for footy and now, I was I took it far too um, to one extreme. I didn't enjoy playing footy enough. I was far too highly strung, and I wasn't a great teammate at times, and was you know semi selfish with the way that I prepared. Um, but that's what I thought worked. I've used a bit of that, the good stuff, into the media stuff, and you learn as you get a little bit older. But yeah, the preparation, like just for example, on Friday, you got to talk for five and a half hours on the radio, and three of it is on my own. So that was so daunting when they first said, you're going to be in the chair for three hours on your own. You, you don't have a co-host. Hopefully you get some calls and you get some texts and you can do it that way and you'll have a couple of interviews. But there's a fair bit of preparation, as you can imagine, that goes into speaking on your own for three hours. But then you develop a system, you become very organized. And the more you do it, the more flying hours you get, as, as you would know, the better you become at it. I love what you just said then about what you've learned from your career and transitioned into the next phase of your career. Because I, I think that elite sport in general just sets you up for success if you can use it correctly. And there's no... I think you can look back at those players that you've played with now and they'd identify straight away. And whether they're absolute stars of the game or whether they're not getting a game at all, you know whether they're going to be successful when they leave footy or not because it's those habits that you have while you're playing footy. A lot of players, um, you know, in football and in elite sport, you can get away with, with talent and, and just being a natural athlete and, and playing 300 games or, or winning flags. But I think that there's those, those ingrained habits that when you leave the game, you either have them or you don't. Have you found that leaving the game now, you look at players and you go, fuck, that probably isn't a surprise to me and that, that is a surprise to me? Absolutely. Some, some have surprised me though. Like, you know, teammates that you play with that – uh, I, I would never have thought Damien Harwood would be a coach, let alone a, a three-time, you know, because he, you know, my experience, I was a young guy and he was a he was a more of a veteran coming in. He, he didn't embrace the media and there were some things that sort of annoyed me. And I thought, yeah, I'm not sure he'll, I'm not, I had no idea Stewie Jew would be a coach because from my recollection, and everyone has their different perspective, he, he didn't like the team meetings and um, things like that. And Stewie Jew's gone. So some do really surprise you, but you can see that those successful habits, like it's no surprise um, from the minute Travis Boat walked into the Port Adelaide Football Club that he's going to be an absolute champion because he just picked up those habits straight away and evolved them into his game to the absolute professional that he is. It's not to say, Dill, though, that it wasn't uh, that it was easy to leave footy, and I'm not sure exactly where you want to take the podcast or be guided um, by you, but you know, I, I question 
what the hell am I going to do after? Yeah. Uh, drafted at 17. All I ever wanted to do from five was play footy. Um, and you get there at 17, didn't leave home, play for 15 years, then it's finished. You know, I'm not turning up at the footy club at eight o'clock. I'm not being told when to eat, what to eat, where to be. Um, you know, the, the, the structure around that, knowing my holiday, when my holiday is going to be and, and fitting your life in around that to getting to the end and going, gee, what am I doing now? And, and we're seeing it with, you know, Talia and McKay and all these players, Basha Hooley retiring at the moment. That was where the fireman stuff came in. I thought, oh, this is sort of suits me. It's not a nine to five. It's, you know, shift work. I have some free time. We'll be able to keep fit, which I love and I'm passionate about. So I thought that, well, that, that sort of works. Completely wrong. Didn't, was, was awful for me. Hated every minute of it. Couldn't wait to get out. So it's not to say that I knew exactly what I wanted to do after I finished footy. That is, it's a really, really hard question to face, isn't it? And I think something that I speak about a lot on the show is in reflection now of my career, how happy I am and and not happy, but how lucky I am that I left footy at 26, 27 years of age because it actually forced me to then go, well, I'm still at that age where I have a little bit of time to work out what's next for me. There's still that enormous amount of pressure because I don't know about you, but like at 27 years of age, when you're on an AFL list, my ego was my worst enemy and I didn't want to ever like let people know that I'd failed or wasn't doing anything that I wasn't happy doing. And I was in the exact same boat. It took me so long to really work out what I wanted to do, but I had that two-year transition where I was at the Giants and not proud to say it now, but I was pretty much a part-time footballer and, and full-time transitioner out of the game, just using that time to try and work out what I wanted to do. But I still think to this day, and something I'm so passionate about with, with athletes in general and even people is, is doing something that you love. And I love that you've just said then that you didn't settle for that because I think a lot of people do settle for doing things that is easy and not things that they want to do. And a lot of players leave leave footy and they go, well, I'm going to go play local footy for this this footy club and I'll earn 200 grand doing a job that I absolutely fucking hate. Or can I go start at the bottom somewhere else and forge my own career in something that I absolutely love? And that, that was it. Like I could have – and people – you know, people in the forest like they 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 love it, and they think they for them it's the it's the best job, and they're really passionate about it. But it wasn't that for me? And a lot of people say, "Why well, why'd you why'd you do it, and why'd you leave?" Well, I think I explained the reasons why. I could have easily sat there until I was seventy and um, earned a reasonable living and had some you know four days on, four days off, but I just didn't want to be there, and and, and I despised it. So. For me, this doesn't feel like work, as you said. Uh, you can you can sense your passion and your authenticity coming through when you speak of how much you do like it. And if you find something you love, it it doesn't really feel like work. That's it for me. Not to say it doesn't have some pretty ordinary things about the the profession and the industry and things I don't like about it. But everyone's the same. I think there's not everyone's got the perfect job that they absolutely love, and there's no flaws with it. I'm the same, but on the whole. I'd bounce out of bed at you know five in the morning and, and look forward to getting here and, and talking about sport. Mate, you do it so well. Let's get into those intricacies a bit later on. But normally what I want to do is one thing I find pretty interesting is Kane Corns now and the, the man we know in the media, this polarising views is, is pretty crazy. But I think we can easily forget what happened before this and the, the incredible career that you actually did play footy. You're a premiership player. You're a 300 game player. The great. And, and even myself, like going back doing research for the podcast, I was like, fuck me, Kane Corns like, I can't believe what you've actually done on field that is very quickly forgotten about. Now, I know you're humble. Um, you're a very humble man, so I'm going to have to bring these out of you. But let's let's go back to the start, mate. Obviously, growing up in South Australia, a lot of Victorians might not know, but your father, Graham Corns, one of the biggest names in, in South Australia 
um, in South Australian footy in the Sandful. What was it like for you growing up? What was it like playing footy and then ultimately getting to, to Port Adelaide in, in your first few years? Yeah, my childhood was interesting. Mum and dad got divorced when I was three. Um, we moved, so mum, Chad and I moved around the corner. Dad, So dad lived within about, I don't know, 500 metres of me. So my, one of my first memories is waking up riding to dad's in the morning before school and having breakfast with dad just after mum and um, dad divorced. My mum never got over it. Uh, There's an incredible sadness from my childhood to just um, to the point where I just remember seeing mum in despair at times. She was just, she just never, she still hasn't got over it. Like it's just never been able to move on. And I was quite close to mum. So did it tough because you felt your mother's emotions through that. Dad was coaching, he was busy. He had, you know, he owned a car yard and he had a radio and he had coaching and all that. So he was... He was fine. I was never concerned about him. We saw him every second weekend. So for me, my childhood was full of a lot of sadness and I never sort of could understand why my mum was so upset. So that was the overriding. We then moved to Yule Street in Glenelg, which is, uh, once again, maybe 200 metres from the Glenelg Oval, where, where Dad was coach. He was a legend, 300-game player, all of that. So my earliest memories of footy is heading across, walking across the Glenelg Oval with Chad, and dad used to let us in the change rooms at halftime and after the game. And for a five, six, seven-year-old, this was the best thing that could ever happen to me. I remember the little things of tasting the cordial that the players drank and going to help. And, and they had PK chewies at the players. I thought, this is just the best thing that's ever happened. I, that's just what I want to do. Captivated by it. Uh, dad w- was brutal, swearing, losing his mind at halftime. But we were in there. Like I can't, I can't imagine... You know, a coach these days bringing their kids into the, the halftime huddle. That's, but that's the access we got. Then he moved on to the Crows, and that was, mate, that was the biggest thing that's that's ever happened. 1991 in South Australia was just crazy. He was the coach. I, I was a eight-year-old kid going to all the Crows home games, copping shit at school from the from um, the kids if the, the Crows lost, but on fire if they won. So it was just full of footy. Um, but that was the escape, as I said. That was my escape from an overwhelming sadness of you know living with your mum, who was just really sad. She, great mother, and we were so loved, and all of that. But it's hard not to escape the memories of that. You know, I, I guess despair is probably the best word to use it. I mean, we're getting a bit deep here, mate. But um, just giving you the insight of to what it was like for me, and maybe some of my issues later on in life were sort of harvest from that you know that age of probably three to ten no I mate I, I'm all for getting deep it's one thing that I, I do a little bit too much and my missus always pulls me up on it especially after a few beers around the table with friends but you're so right in in terms of growing up and and things shaping who you are as a person later on like I am the first person to say this like I, I see people regularly I'm so into my mental health like I love being on top of it and understanding why I am like I am and one thing you do learn I think when you're an adult is what you grow up with is, is who you become, really. It does actually shape everything you know about growing up as an adult. So, no, I really appreciate the, the opus, openness and, and honesty on that because it's it's not easy to talk about. Yeah, exactly. And then we you move on to um, where, where did it go to from there? So the, the, then it was but to, you know, I was, I was quite a good footballer as a, as a junior. Like I grew... I grew quicker than everyone else. So by the time I was 12, I was probably similar height to what I am now. I remember playing centre forward and and things became reasonably easy as a junior footballer. For me, you make all the you know under twelve state team, sixteens, eight, all of that, and then the, the path to the to the draft was there. 
But the first real challenge um, came for me was uh, when you get invited to the draft camp. Did you go to the draft camp? I did. Yeah, it's you know what it's like. It's it's absolutely brutal. It's 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 like a you know a cattle show for for AFL recruiters. And there's the first time you sort of get an indication that it's a business. It's it's not really about people. It's about how fast can you run, how high can you jump, how do you interview, and you, you really got to put on a show. We were doing the twenty meter sprint as you would remember, and a, a good score is about three seconds. Oh, you, do you remember your time? Yeah, I think mine was about two. There you go. Yeah, it's too flat for you. <laughs> I ran it and mine was 317. Wow, that is, that's that's pretty slow. That is slow. That's a turtle. Like, and So you get two cracks. So I'm, I've gone, I'm 317. I've looked across. Like, oh no, I'm going to have to get my skates on here. I've done it again. I was like 319. And Phil Walsh, we can get to Phil Walsh if you like because he... It, yeah, from the moment I first met him, I knew he was special. He was sitting there, and I knew I knew of Walshy because Chad was at Port at the time, and his that was his one event. So just sit on the sidelines in almost like a deck chair with a with a note. He crossed his fingers and he just sort of watched the players run through. And I remember just looking over, and he knew me, and I could tell that there was sort of a care factor there with the connection with Chad. And he just sort of put his hand head down. I thought that's it, that's my AFL dream because at the time it was all about it was the, the era where the athlete was coming through. You know, it was. How's your engine? How quick are you? How high can you jump? It was sort of, it's turned a bit back to, back to the footballer. Um, but I thought it was over. I was the second slowest player at the draft camp. I thought, oh, footy had been so easy for me. I'd grown and it also stopped growing. I was 182 and all the players were going past me. I thought, I'm in a, I'm in a bit of trouble here. Um, so I jumped on the phone and I rang Mark Williams, who was coaching Chad. He'd never spoken to me before ever. Choco, he knew me through Chad. Uh, and I said, Choco, you got to draft me. Like you won't, you won't regret it. You, you got to draft me. And they had picks twelve or twenty or something. He said, "Look, I'm not, I'm not drafting you with my first pick. We'll see what happens later on." Anyway, cards fell my way. But I just remember that the first real challenge that I've faced as a footballer after things coming pretty easy for me um, in junior in the junior ranks. That's that's not a normal um, way of thinking, though, mate. I think it, especially at that young age, even at twenty seven, I was I was still avoiding going and and having reviews with my coaches at that years of age like do you look back now and think fuck that was actually pretty crazy yeah I, I look back and think I can't believe they put up with me like I really I really can't look obviously I had some attributes that they admired like I was so driven you know I would have been I was a hard trainer all of that but there was some things that drove them absolutely mad teammates coaches but I had no idea like I for Eight years of 15 years in the system, I was a pretty ordinary teammate. Not, not, not through being a bad person, but from being selfish, from thinking, oh, I've got to get 30. Oh, I've got to finish top five in the best. I've got to win. I've got to be all right. And I, of course, I wanted to win and I wanted to beat my opponent. I wanted to be a good, a good teammate, but I was, I was blinded by my drive, maybe dating back to that moment in draft camp or that moment as a three-year-old kid where you want to make something of yourself to, it was too much about it was too much about me and it wasn't until sort of the last two, three years of my career where it, you know, it sort of finally clicked and they were some of the most enjoyable, but I look back and I almost put my hand up and apologize to some of my teammates. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a situation where I was undisciplined and, and hitting the pierce and having high skin folds or things like that, that frustrate teammates. As, as you would know, it was more a bit of, you know, it's a brutal word, but it was a bit of selfishness that's, that I regret. 
I, I completely agree and I completely know. I don't know to your level, but I had a chat with Brandon Jack last week who we obviously didn't get to the heights of your career, but it, it's it's something that's prevalent in, in high-performance sport is that competitiveness and is that selfishness that goes through athletes' minds. And it's not till you retire now that you reflect on it and you look back and you go, fuck, what was I actually thinking? Like, what was actually going through my head? And if you could see, if someone from the outside world, could actually go into an athlete's mind and pick up what they're actually thinking and and hoping that a teammate gets injured or hoping that something doesn't happen so it can fall their way. It, it's actually quite embarrassing to think that. But then another part of me thinks maybe that's what makes players so great. Like I, I look at, for me, you know, I'm so passionate about being, um, being engaged off field. And I go, well, maybe because I was engaged off field, I wasn't selfish and engaged enough in my football. Like, I don't see Dustin Martin going and doing podcasts on the weekend. And it's, you know, it seems to be working pretty well for him. So it's just such a a different thing which just completes with different people. I think think everyone is different. And you you would know, like you walk into a change room and my brother would have been running from five metres away into a brick wall and smashing into a brick wall to get himself up for a game. Whereas you've got other guys, you may have been sitting in a corner having a laugh. Mm. Could never get his head around the guys having a laugh in the corner 30 minutes before a game. I remember him saying, switch on. Like, everyone's got to switch on. This is, we're not taking it serious. But what footy clubs have done now is embrace the individual better than ever. And, you know, still for, for my era, it was, a bit, uh, it was a bit of the old thinking where you earn your stripes, senior players get respect, and everyone does it this way. It's, it's different now. So everyone is different, and, and different things work for different people. But I regret not fitting into the group and being the best teammate I can. And it wasn't as if people didn't try and tell me along the way. That's the other thing. It's, it's, it's not as, uh, and I remember a lot of assistant coaches saying, hey, mate, I reckon in five years you're probably going to regret the way you've gone about it with some things. And I thought, yeah, whatever. Like, this this works for me. I'm going, all right, I'm getting a kick. We're, we're going, okay, I'll continue doing it. And I guess the... The best example I can give you, and someone says, well, what does it mean by being selfish? I, we, we won the flag in 2004. I was 21. I was like, oh, this is pretty easy. We played finals in every year, my first four years at the club, win the flag. 2005 season comes around, and I had, I'd had i finished second in the best and fairest in 2004. It's great years, unbelievable. And I had this thing in my head that I, I had to win the best and fairest in 2005. I, I just had – it was a goal I'd written down – stupid as it sounds I, re- I regret it but all my drive was towards that and got to best and fairest night and, I, and I, I had a good year I'd made the All-Australian team and I thought I was going to win anyway I didn't win so I got up there in second place to have the speech and I, I completely spat the dummy like in terms of my speech was for example I might have said oh, I just want to thank um, Lucy who's my, my, my wife now she's my partner mum and dad and Chad Thanks for your support this year. Thanks. And I got off and walked and I left and I went home. Wow. I know. As, as, and it was like, imagine if, imagine in my role now as a media commentator, being critical of players for, for things that they do and the way that they carry themselves. I would have been pretty brutal if that had come back to me on a player. Like I was critical last night of Scott Pendlebury for, you know, opening himself up to offers from other clubs. Well, that's nothing compared to me storming out of the best and fairest after not winning it that was what it was and I didn't think much of it I thought oh well they've you know they've I should have won it I've got a right to be angry I just can't believe I'm mortified by it now that's an example and that and I was 22 so I was young and all of that there's no real excuses for that I just think I'm, I'm a bit ashamed by some of some of the things I've done but what can you do now do, do you also think though that some of our biggest weaknesses are actually our biggest strengths like 
that was a weakness, obviously, that, that showed that side of you. But in saying that as well, it actually has got you to a spot where you are now. Like, that's something that I battle with a lot in myself. I think, fuck, there's some things that I really, really struggle with and that, that keep me up at night. And, you know, whether it be in work or in life, but then I look on the flip side of it and I'm like, well, fuck, that's what makes me get up and do this every day. And it makes me, you know, somewhat successful in life. And I don't mean successful in terms of monetization, but I just mean in terms of being happy and doing what I love. So I'm in, I'm in a constant battle of being like, well, fuck, this is, is it a weakness or a strength? I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, it, definitely, it was definitely a strength. Like I knew it, but I was, I was like, well, this is what's made me good. This is what's given me success. This is what is working. I just wished... I was always really envious of the players that had a really good balance between um, when they're on, they're on, but when they're not, they can switch off. And it, it wasn't be all and end all for them. You know, if, if they finished whatever, if they, if they had 20 instead of getting 35 and um, stuffed up a few kicks long, they didn't sweat on it and stew on it. I Every turnover I had, I, I'd lay awake thinking about it. If we'd lost and I played badly... You know, Lucy would cop it for three days. I, I, I thought it would be the wrong thing for me to, you know, speak and be happy after a performance like that. Uh, you weren't allowed to speak on the plane after a lot. J- just things like that. I just wish I'd enjoyed the ride a little bit, a, a bit more. Like, you, you, you get to play footy in front of crowds. You travel all around the country. You know, you travel around the world in some instances for, for pre-season camps. I just wished I could have loosened up a little bit and enjoy the ride. But I've got better at that, and I, I definitely learnt, learnt the lesson. Huge. No, I, I think you're completely right. It's hard to, to do both in both camps. Take us back 21 years old, as you mentioned before, 2004 Premiership um, against Brisbane. It's it's incredible the insight that you've given in, into the headspace that you were you were in at that stage that, that I really had no idea about. But what was it like winning a flag at that time with Port? Um, and obviously it was by a pretty big margin too. Well, it was... A relief, and I know that's not the word you should probably say. It, it was a relief. We we'd won more home and away games than any other team for a four-year stretch from 2001 to 2004. But 2001, they went out in straight sets. That was my first year. I didn't play in the finals, but I remember the fallout from it. You know, finishing the top four, gone out in straight sets. 2002, um, finished high uh, one or two, and and lost the qualifying final, which meant your roads way too difficult. Won the first final, 2003, same thing happened again, lost the, and we were just called chokers. Like everyone was calling yeah. us chokers. Uh, the major sponsor here said Port Adelaide would never win a premiership with Mark Williams as coach. And so you, you front up again in 2004, I'm just sort of like, but is this is this what it's like? Is it, you know, I'm just trying to get a kick here in my first couple of years. So to win the prelim final was the first time Port Adelaide had done it in 2004. And it was such a tight game against St Kilda. It was just amazing relief it was like oh we've done it we've at least climbed the hurdle to get to the grand final and then you could enjoy the week a little bit more um it was an amazing experience i remember the final siren went and damien harwick came up to me and said this will be the best week of your life this is moments after the fo- the final siren in the prelim fight. I said, oh okay he said trust me embrace it it'll be the, the best week of your life and it was it was the best week of my life from from monday turning up to organising tickets for your family and friends and, and all that to Tuesday, all, all the media stuff, to main training on Wednesday where we're at Albert and Suburban Ground where all the fans are let in and they're just losing their mind to Thursday jumping on a plane and heading to Melbourne a day earlier than you usually go. Friday's the parade. Friday afternoon we're training at the MCG. So it was just, it was amazing really. Um, and I loved every moment of it. You mentioned about the Choco, um, the famous Choco with the choking, like walking down with his tie and... 
and obviously it's something that we've all seen now. Um, what was he like as a coach, if there's a short answer in that? And obviously the publicity he's getting now at Melbourne, it looks like he's doing some pretty incredible things there. He just he just wants you to get better. So if, if you ask me what makes a good coach, uh, their whole mission is to make the club and the players better. I, I think that's what coaching is, isn't it? To make Your job is to make others better, and, and that's what makes him a success. All he cares about is making his players better and the club better and the people better. Yeah, yeah, he's got some flaws, and, and like you know, we've discussed about some things that you'd, you'd do differently. I'm sure he's got things that he'd do differently, but at the heart of it, he's a great person who is all about making people better. And you now we caught up with him. We try and catch up once a year as a as a group. It's been a bit more difficult the last couple of years, as you can imagine. But there was a small group that caught up for coffee when I was in Melbourne last, and the same thing comes through. He's just about caring. You see it on the interchange bench. What 60-year-old in the game is on the interchange bench screaming instructions to his players to make them better. He's in the warm-up. He's doing kicking with his... So, I, I don't know, I could go on about him for ages, uh, indebted to him for, for the role that he's played. Um, a couple of times I told you I rang him um, before I, he even knew me, before the draft camp, he took the call. When I was on the list, you said you avoided coaching feedback. I used to take it to the next level, unannounced occasionally. I'd turn up on his doorstep on a Monday night and knock on his door and I'd want him to pull the laptop out and go through the vision. This is ridiculous stuff that I did. But for for Pauline, his wife, to to the five kids who, I mean, they didn't turn me away. It was like, oh, okay, Kane's here, let him in. You had dinner? You want a drink? All right, let, let's let's go through it. Brutally honest, but for him to welcome me into the home, and that, and that's a Williams trait. So, so Jenny lives still in Adelaide here. Um, she's married to a doctor called uh, Dr. Mark and been a great supporter. You know, when you've got kids, you, you're concerned about, they got no issues with you bringing your kids over at eight o'clock at night and he'll see them at their house. So it's just, it's a Williams trait, generosity, family, and care are the are three words that are, are pretty good to describe the Williams family as a whole. Unbelievable. That's a, some incredible words. We see a lot of people now saying that because of the work he's done with, with Melbourne, they'd love to see him get a senior gig. Do, do you think that that's actually something that's viable or do you think that with the way that he coaches, it, it's such a holistic thing. It's throwing up ideas that are out of the blue that it's really just a role that can be supporting a senior coach. Like I was speaking to one of my mates. No, he wasn't. I, I missed him, but obviously with, with Dylan Shield um, and obviously dating Georgie that, that we've been pretty close and, and Adam Tomlinson's now at Melbourne and he just says some of the shit that they do is unbelievable. I think you're saying the other day they had a, a crane brought in with tackle bags over the MCG to practice their tackling. Like instead of just getting something else, like a, a, an actual tackle frame bag to come in, he got a, hired a crane to come in and drop a bag in. Yeah, the, the stories you could tell about some of the ideas he had. So he, he has this thing called kicking school and he still does it to this day, I know, because I've spoken to him about it, where it's just about the art of kicking. So he, he rated himself as a kick when he was a player chucker. He thought he was a very yeah. – he's not, he's not shy. He's, he's, he's not that humble. He, he rates himself, which is, is an air of confidence about him, which we love. But he rated himself as a kick, and he, he couldn't understand why players couldn't kick, so he started kicking school. He used to have an assistant coach by the – you know, Stewie Cochran was his name, played a bit of footy at Port Adelaide and Central, was driving his car with a sunroof around the oval, and we're trying to lob balls into Stewie Cochran's car like to practice the art of depth kicking and things, just shit like this. He just did that. Some people were just looking at him going, what, what is next? And that's, you know, yeah. you know that tackle bag idea, that was, you know, he had that. He was always looking for something else. He, he had reaction lights where you turn the wrong way 
And as you turn, someone feeds you a ball. And as the light goes off, you've got to identify the light and kick it to the target. Just, you know, he's very much ahead of his time. Um, to answer your question, do I think he'll coach again? I don't now. I don't think that's right. Um, and I would have thought ideally at Collingwood, and I just chucked up a few ideas, as I said, about content before you, you, you speak a, a lot of rubbish. Some of it um, takes off and some of it doesn't. But I thought Choco for two years at Collingwood with a – Sam Mitchell type was was what I said before. Sam Mitchell got the Hawthorne job. Would have been ideal for me. I would have thought that would have been a nice way to help the Collingwood developing players, but also mentor another coach coming through. But I think it's probably uh, the, the ship has sailed. But as you can see, there's still a role for him in the game, which I'm, which I'm thrilled about. 100%. I think so many coaches, um, and I use this as an example now, and, and my biggest sort of pet peeve with what's happened with Carlton is the fact that he, ha- like David Teague, I don't think has had the support around him that he's deserved and, and, and that, has been warranted. You know, he's coached two years of COVID footy. He's had the same assistant coaches there from when I was there nearly six years ago. Um, hasn't been able to bring anyone in from his own team. But imagine having a, a cool head like that to support someone and to bring up these ideas and then for a senior coach to be able to funnel them. And I think that that's something that the outside world don't actually understand and doesn't get commented enough in, in the media is coaches are managers of the other coaches. And David Teague isn't making every single call that happens at Carlton right now. He relies on everyone else in that football club to actually be pulling their weight as well. And I suppose from an outside point of view, and, and look, I, I'm, I think this holds a little bit of weight by me saying this because I've never really had incredible relationships with coaches, but if I'm able to identify that and know that it's not their doing, then it should probably mean more than someone that gets you know playing every week. I think you're spot on with that. Like even look, the successful teams that I've been a part of, and um, you know, I mentioned Phil Walsh. He was uh, about that premiership team. He was the he was the strategist behind that whole premiership. So he would be the one that had watched the opposition analysis for six weeks before we played them. Now, Mark Williams wasn't doing that. He was the one that was you know on champion data. You know this is you know, 16, 17 years ago before it was as prevalent with stats at the moment. He was the one. Well, which stats are important to us? Which one? And then he's he's channeling that information to Choco. Well, this is this is Brisbane's strength. So. The Monday of the grand final, um, this was a tradition that I had with Walsh. I'd, I'd walk in, we'd watch my um, possessions and we'd watch the, the player that I played on their possessions and I'd get an indication of, of how I went. But then before I left the meeting, I'd also get an idea of who I was going to be playing on the following week. For an example, the, the Monday of the grand final week, I walked into his office and he said, who do you reckon you're going to play on this week? This is before the grand final. I said, oh, maybe Voss. He said, no. Nah. I said, oh, what about Acker? Nah. Lappin? He said, nah. He said, you're playing on black. So this is Monday. This isn't a coach making the call. This isn't Choco. This isn't David Teague. This is an assistant coach making one of the biggest midfield matchup calls in the lead up to a grand final. So you're right. Like these coaches cop all of the blame. And that's why I'm a bit critical with the Teague situation of John Warsfold. Like I'm sure I read somewhere months ago that John Warsfold was coming in as an advisor to David Teague. Well, what's he done? What's John Warsfold done and it's always going to be the senior coach that cops it I think David Teague's messaging throughout the year hasn't been strong enough um, and he's been uh, he hasn't commanded the room with the direction that he believed the group was going in and I think that's hurt him Um, but the last three weeks that shifted hasn't his language has become stronger which I've which I've admired about him well something that I've really admired about you today mate is your is your vulnerability and even just the things that we've spoken about quite early um in terms of your family, in terms of talking about um, your you know obsessiveness of an athlete and things that aren't necessarily things that people love talking about, 
I think we've realised now how much people just want people to be vulnerable and how much more admiration and respect I've just had from you from this one conversation about you bringing them up with me. Like we talk about the Teague example, him sitting down the other day and saying, would I have loved more support? Yeah, I would have. I was just like, fuck me, I love this bloke. Like I, I genuinely love him. Like, what a legend. I've wanted that more. And I am I think he had a, I don't know, I'm just, this is my read on the situation. I think he had a real confidence that he was the right guy moving forward. And I don't think he ever thought, well, they're going to they're gonna move off me. And maybe that was due to some strong relationships he had with key players and influential players at the club. So I think he maybe felt a bit more secure and he didn't need to fight like he has done in the last three weeks. But I, I love the fact that, you know, his comments about this isn't, essentially the way to treat people. This isn't a high performance. This isn't a high performance club, the mm. way that we're, we're doing this. You can't have people from fitness guys to doctors to physios to recruiting walking around thinking, am I here next year? From the coach, it's not just the coach. This review is all encompassing from from players, the uncontracted players. You've been in that. It's brutal for, for players. What are we? We're, we're, you know, we're late August and, and people don't know where they're going to be next year. It's not a way to treat people. And you know, I think most people believe what you think about his coaching. And I've been as critical as anyone about Carlton's performance, but that's not the way um, to treat your senior coach. And, it, and he's a player of that club as well. He's represented the club a hundred times. It's just not the way you go about um, dealing with people. Yeah, and, and that's probably the hard thing for, for Carlton supporters in general, I think, just touching on that quickly, is that this isn't a thing that's been happening for the last two years. You know, I was there four or five years ago now and the last three years of my career was exactly the same. I was sitting in exit interviews with weights coaches, both looking at each other going, is there any fucking point in us actually having a chat right now? Because we both don't know if we're <laughs> going to be here for the end of the year. So um, I think when you've got a place that no one knows if they're even going to be there, it's just, it's not comfortable. And, and that's why I've always been a big fan of what Hawthorne was able to do with, with Clarkson and, and stick fat by him. And and the same thing happened with Richmond, with Damien Hardwick and, and, and the like. Um, is Teague the right man for the job? That's not the question at hand. It's just more the fact that is the support there and, and is the support there for other coaches going forward? You look at Stewie Jew and Brett Ratton, even from St Kilda, have they got the, the thing around them to, to keep them going forward? It's it's it's, it's a massive um, problem for coaches, I feel. I agree, agree with all of that. And, you know, you've all, you've all played, uh, you've played footy for long enough. You've played with some really strong teams and you've played with some teams that are, are breaking apart. And, um, you know, that was, for me, the worst team I've played in was 2011, 2012. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it was some players' fault behind it. I don't um, absolve myself of any blame of this either. As I said, it wasn't the greatest teammate, but you've got board making decisions, you've got coaches, every, all the uncertainty. You've got a group of senior players who feel like they should be playing and they're not. You've got the young guys who are being gifted games because they're the future. And all of a sudden, your group is in different sort of organisations. You've got the group, you know, you can, uh, what are they saying over there in the corner or in mm-hmm. the car park? You're not, you're not united. And, I hate to keep talking about Walshy, but the one thing that he did say that always stuck with me, he was in charge of the leadership program. And at leadership meetings, the last thing he would say is, has everyone said everything that needs to be said before we leave this room? Because good clubs have conversations in here. Shit clubs have conversations out there. And I've, all, I've never I've never forgot that. as like, okay, if you're not willing to say it now, don't say it at all. And if you are, you've got an issue, bring it up and we'll address it and yeah. we'll talk about it. Um, and I'll never forget the moment he said that and the influence he had over me as a person and a footballer. I've got a very linear story that I have told before, but I feel like I have to tell you this because at the end of my sort of tenure at Carlton, and and this is why I do speak of Brendan Bolton so highly and think that if he did have support network around him, I, I would love for him to get another 
um, job at a coaching position. He had absolutely no right to care about me. I would, I'd crack the shits. I was selfish. I was doing my own thing. I was probably a really bad person to be around in the footy club and thinking that I was a positive person, I definitely wasn't. And and I remember one day he pulled me up and we had a meeting and this was probably around 20 um, at the end of the season. Like the, the writing was on the wall, but he still pulled me to this meeting, took a half an hour out of his time to have a chat. And he said, mate, how do you think the club's going at the moment? You know, you're, you're a likeable guy. Um, you know, that all the boys love you. How do you think it's going? And in my head, I'm like, yeah, mate, it's going good. Whatever, like, let's get this done. He goes, no, come on. Like, what are the boys saying about everything? And to this stage, I I was fed up. I was like, fuck this. You know what? I'm going to let him have it. So, you know what, mate? Everyone's fucking pissed off. Like, you're playing these young blokes. You're doing this. You're doing that. Like, we're saying all these things. And, you know, you're giving these guys games. And you say this to me, but you say this to them. And he just looked at me and he's like, who's saying those things to you? And I was like, what do you mean? And I was like, I'm not throwing my mates under the bus. And he's like... He goes, is Mark Murphy saying those things? And I was like, oh, nah, not really. He goes, is Paddy Cripp saying those things? I was like, oh, nah. You know, Sam Doherty? No. He goes, you are who you surround yourself with. And if you're negative, you're going to hang around with negative people. He goes, and honestly, still to this day, I get goosebumps thinking about it because it changed my life forever. Like, not in terms of football club, but it was like he genuinely just like wheeled me in I thought I was going to slam dunk him and he's just come right over the top and punched me straight in the face. And I just realised I've been the most negative piece of energy that because people feel like they can come and bitch and moan to me, that that's what they're going to come and do. Like, I'm not going to go bitch and moan to you if I don't think you're going to accept it. And um, I just remember going, fuck, like that was, you got me good. That was a good one. And it's brilliant because uh, from that moment for us, like I, I love that story because it was similar and similar experiences from that 11 and 12 side, the worst teams I've been a part of. But then a new guy comes in and Ken Hinckley's the coach. And what makes him good, so everyone knows exactly where they stand. So the conversations that you're having and you've expressed to Brendan Bolton don't happen because every Thursday or Wednesday when he picks the team, he goes and speaks to every player. And I've never seen a coach do this. So... He'll have his, his whiteboard, he'll have the AFL team, he'll flip it over, he'll have the sample team. He'll say, so you, you might be in weights. They, the moment they come out of selection, he'll come and say, Dill, come here. Hey, Dill, you didn't make it this week. You're playing sample, you're playing small forward. I want this, 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 and this from you. Are you crystal clear with what I want? And do you have any questions for me? You might say, well, Kenny, well, Carl Amon's playing on half forward. I'm in better form than him. Why is he playing in front of me? And he'll tell you why. He'll go around to 44 blokes and do that every week. So you get to the point at the end of the year where you can't have had those conversations and think, well, why is he playing in front of me? Because Ken Hinckley's told you every every day, every week. So you're crystal clear. And that was one of the big shifts for the Port Adelaide Football Club, where every single player, you, you may not have liked not being in the team, but you could never say you didn't understand why you weren't in the team. And, and that's something that he still do, does to this day. Yeah, that's huge. And I think that's all you ask for as a player is transparency. But I, I still believe now, looking back, it's got to be less on the coaches and more on the players to actually seek that. And I don't think oh, I didn't do that well enough as a player. And I don't think a lot do. You know, you, you, you want things given to you on a platter. And you realise very quickly in life that when you leave AFL, nothing gets given to you on a platter. So um, I think players sometimes do need a bit of a reality check, which I'm, which I'm really transparent about. You speak about Port Adelaide, and, and this is something that I've you know, been absolutely fascinated with for a long time. Your career obviously started, um, I think, 2000, 2001. You win your flag in, in 2003. 
<clears throat> I actually debuted in a NAB Cup game back in 2010 playing at Adelaide Oval. And I remember going there and, and this vision of Port Adelaide being, like, no offence to Port Adelaide, but back in the day it was a pretty... I was like, this is a dire club, you know? Like, they're putting tarps over seats here. It's There's... I can't imagine anyone wanting to come play out here. This is incredible. Like how, you know, quite bad this is. To to fast forward a few years later and you've had this complete rebrand of a club. You've changed the jumper. They've brought in, never tear us apart in excess. The game day experience is second to none. Now, I know success, you need success to change clubs, but I feel like as an actual board and organisation or whoever it was in the marketing department or the CEO, whatever it is, it, it's... Got to be one of the biggest 180s I've seen in sport. And, and I don't feel it actually gets enough credit that it deserves. It probably doesn't. And I'm glad you I mean, it's, it's astute of you to pick up on it because that would have been footy park, I reckon, that you, to, if it was 2010, your first game would have been. Yeah. It's cold. West Lakes, it was the Crows' home. Um, it was always in, it was where the Crows had their facilities. You walk around the stadium, there's Crows signage everywhere. And the, the, the Port Adelaide people just didn't embrace it. it was, it was impossible. It just didn't feel like their home. So the move in, in 2013 to Adelaide Oval really helped. Um, heart of the city, nice new stadium, and the Port Adelaide people thought that they could embrace it. The other thing they did, instead of distancing themselves from where they came from in the Sample, was they started to embrace that. Now, there was a real confusion when they came in. Are we, are we magpies from the Sample or are we a new entity? Well, they and, and fans were confused, so they embraced the past. Uh, they brought back some people to the club. Uh, Keith Thomas was amazing. He was a CEO. He, he's not anymore. He, he's just left, but he was amazing. Koshy was amazing. You know, love or hate Koshy. He put Port Adelaide on the map. Uh, national TV platform, big identity, great figure, charismatic. Speaking about Port Adelaide, that helped. And, and Ken Hinckley helped for those reasons as well. Um, and Port Adelaide's now cool. And they've overtaken the Crows as the number one team, in Adelaide, which, is, which is the first time it's ever happened in 30 years. It's massive. So full credit to them, but you're right. Winning helps, and winning another flag would help. Um, uh, that would that would really help. But you're right; it's an astute pick up, and um, it's for a young supporter. Are you going to support the Crows now or Port Adelaide? Well, Port Adelaide's the cool team for those reasons, but it wasn't easy. No, it definitely wasn't, and it's a, it's a credit to whoever did that. I don't know. I'd love to sit in in some of those meetings, and I think a few other boards in the AFL might need to might need to check out what Port's been able to do because it's at at this stage, I really do feel like it's it's second to none, to be honest. There was a an ad campaign that Ken Hinckley did when he first uh, took the job. So we'd won five games in 2012, and the next preseason he fronted an ad campaign for the club, and he, all he said was, "Is we will never ever give up." He didn't promise anything in terms of we're going to win it. We're going to, but what what I can promise you, we'll never ever give up. And for the long year, we want to find. We went from five wins in 2012, five wins. So that's that that's North Melbourne now. So they four and a half they won for the. Can you imagine North Melbourne winning a final next year? I I can't. But that's what happened for, for us. And then the, the next year, kick away from a grand final. In a pre, the turnaround was as quick as I've, I've ever seen because of the reasons you identified. But, yeah, it was pretty bold marketing campaign. Got the people behind it. They put T-shirts on the seats of the first game at Adelaide Oval. They embraced it. Yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal job. Well, it's nearly like the Richmond-Brendan Gale circa as well, what he's been able to do with Richmond. It's it's pretty cool. It just shows that you need to put yourself out there. And, and like we've said, a little bit of a, a, um, a common theme today has been that vulnerability and, and really showing your authentic self, which it looks like Porter doing very well. Mate, let's transition to your uh, next phase of your career. You said earlier that it was it was a tough time. You weren't sure what you were what you were doing, how it was going to look for you post football. Three hundred games. I think you're 32 years of age um, at that stage, which is 
a pretty tough mate. Like, as I said earlier, I was 27 and, and, you know, I could move back in with mum and dad for a few months before I worked out what I was doing. But for you at that age, it's, it must be pretty scary if you hadn't had many plans for the transition. Yeah, I'd always, I'd often thought about it. I mean, every player does. What am I going to do next? But I'm not sure everyone fully lands on the answer. There's a couple that, you know, go into areas that is a no-brainer for them. It wasn't the case for me. I had three kids um, at private school. I had kids as a youngster. You know, my kids would have been uh, 32. So that's, you know, six years ago. My my eldest would have been nine. So he's pretty old and and into schooling. So, yeah, you've got some commitments. What are you going to do? And my best mate's a fiery. Um, he said, look, you'll love it. Uh, four days on, four days. You have so much time off. You can, When you're there, you can go to the gym and keep fit and you, you're around these guys. So I just put my name in to get an interview for the fireys. I think the first thing is just to do a beep test, which was no worries. This was sort of a, the, the pre-season of 2015 where I knew it was going to be my last year anyway. Get to the next step. Next step is a, an aptitude test. So go sit down, fill out a multiple choice, You know, get to the next. Next step's a, an interview. So I prepared for the interview, like I prepare for everything, and I've, I've blown them away in the interview. I could, t- you know, when you you have a really good interview, I could tell that, you know, I'd, I'd done everything. I was really well prepared. I knew the questions, that the way that they were going to go, and I blew them away. And I walked out of this interview, and I thought, I'm going to have to make. If I get the nod here, I'm going to make a have to make a call halfway through the year of whether I take it up. And the letter comes out. And last step is just one last physical. You got to hold a hose. You got to crawl through a tunnel in a certain time frame. You got to climb the stairs with your air pack on your and your face mask on. If you get through that, we start. They call it drill squad. We we start drill squad in May or, or whatever the date was. So what are you going to do? And eventually, after speaking to some people, I was like, oh, this opportunity is too good. The, the recruitment process doesn't come up very often. I'm going to have to make a call. So I went and sat down with Ken Hinckley. I was on like 297 games. He said. Well, it was going to be your last game. It was going to be your last year anyway. You knew that. We knew that coming in. Um, if this is what you want to do, you've, you've got our full support. It was, it was amazing from them to do that. Keith Thomas, the CEO, was the same. Chris Davies, the footy boss, all fully supportive. Ken said, I want to get you to 300 games. I, I want to get you there. So you know, people think that's a little bit selfish to get there. But no, it was, impo- I'm not going to, it was important to me. I mean, it's, it's 300 Sounds a bit better than two ninety eight or two ninety seven, mm. doesn't it? Like it was just, oh, it was just there, yeah. like to be the first three hundred. There is a few things that keep me up at night, and getting playing, finishing on forty one and not fifty is one of them, to be honest. <laughs> exactly right. So the club was fine with it. We're going to get you there anyway. So I played the last game and and went off and uh, had a couple of weeks off, and then started this this drill squad, which was so intense, like three months learning how to be a fireman. It was completely different to to anything. I've done, you know, you've you've gone from earning, you know, three fifty, I think I was in my last year, to earning forty one thousand or something. As a so, there's a lot of adjustment. Not there's just one example of adjusting to to life doing it. Got through it, didn't mind it, but from the basically the moment I started, when I was fully qualified, I, I knew it wasn't going to happen. I, I was dabbling in the media. It was always an interest for me. I was doing a bit of stuff for Croc Media at the time. Sen now they've rebranded too, and. I was doing a TV show called Footy SA with that that Craig Hutchison was hosting, and one day after a show, he pulled me aside. I said, "What do you want to do?" He said, "Do you, do you want to be a fireman or do you want to take this seriously?" He goes, "I think you've got the capabilities. Uh, you look good on camera. You're not afraid to have an opinion. Um, you know, we're growing our business into South Australia. I'd love for you to be a part of it. So go away and have a think about it." So I did. Um, he put an offer to me. This is a year into you know, being a fireman, and it was. 
it was an offer that was too good to to refuse because it was it was what I wanted to do. So I can't thank you know Hachi enough for that, and 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 throughout it as well, the, the guidance, the opportunities that he's given me with SEN to to be on the platforms. Um, so a, a massive you know debt of gratitude to him for identifying something because you know a sliding doors moment wasn't it? I could have, as I said, easily stayed there and, and done that. Um, or gone in a new direction, was, which was a little bit scary and a little bit uncertain, but I'm glad I, I took the, the route I did. How, how did you develop this on-screen persona? And, and would you even say it's an on-screen persona, or, or is it is it calculated? And, and I'm not going to sit here and, and think that it's, it's not. Like, there is a lot of these things that you say. Um, people think that you're just trying to be a dickhead about it, but it, it, it's media. It's, it's nearly, sometimes it is an act. It's, it's getting opinions. It's getting the phones ringing. Um, there is a bit of thought that actually goes into it. Well, it's entertainment, isn't it? Like it, it, it is. is, it is entertainment. So if you want to, if you want to sit there, and and many have come before it, and many haven't lasted, that are going to say, "Oh, that was a that was a beautiful kick." Did you see how how he did that? Oh, <laughs> Port Adelaide, what a great side! How good is Ken Inkley? Like they they're just, I love the way. If you're going just just going to be positive, you'll last two years, and you know, without naming names, you could. You could give a million examples of, of people that have just blended in and, and not wanted to be courageous enough to have an opinion that's going to be unpopular. And it's not easy, particularly in the social media age. Like the minute you, you so Tuesday morning, my you open Twitter, the, the things you say on Footy Classified, which is an abrasive show, it's combative, it's it pushes the boundaries that other shows don't go to. My, my phone is just, particularly Twitter, is just off the hook with people having a crack. So you've got to cop that. And I'm prepared to cop that. Is it an act? No, it's it's not an act. I, I've never said anything I don't believe. You would put 5, 10, 15, 20%, if you get it wrong, 30% too much uh, GST or, or mayonnaise onto it if you, if you want to really make the point. So it's, it's getting that balance right. How much... So you give an opinion which you believe in. What level do you take it to in terms of how hard are you going to go or, or which areas are you going to go to? That is always the balancing act, um, but you've you've got to be prepared to say something. Otherwise, it's going to be pretty boring. I, I do, as you would, been a um, you know a revolutionary podcaster in this country. I do listen to a lot of, I consume a lot of American media, and they just don't care. the 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 mm. best ones, the best ones, the highest paid ones, the ones with the biggest profiles, are the ones that have a big opinion. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not as if they don't give thought to it, but then they back it up and they're willing to debate it. Not always right. You make some calls and I've, I've done it millions of times, you get them wrong, but you keep fronting up and, and you have your say. That, that's just the strategy that I've gone with. Yes, it's been calculated to go that way, um, but it's my style and it's it's what I believe in and, and it's what I think it's what I think works and, and what I think is a bit of a void in, in the AFL media landscape. I, I totally agree. I, I think your role is, and I'm not just saying this because I've got you on the show. It's honestly why I got you on the show. I think it's it's, it's needed. It's exciting. It gives so much insight into the game. And, and to be honest, as you said earlier, just having four people agree with each other is, is the most boring thing in the world. And, and it, it's it's nothing exciting about it. The way The way I actually think about this, and I have thought about it a lot, is... I'm a big movie man, and when you watch a movie, you, you everyone watches a movie or, or a series for the um, the superhero, right? But the superhero needs someone else that keeps you intact. And the reason you actually watch those movies, and this is the, like going back, 
I've nearly DM'd actors and actresses after I've watched movies being like, fuck you. So, like, you should not have made me feel like that in that movie. Then I remember, fuck, they're just acting in that movie. Like, that's not actually personal. And I, I think that's honestly a role that you play is the fact that people have got to understand that it, you, you need it. You actually need to have differing opinions and, 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 and fall into the AFL landscape. It's actually healthy. If you get, so, so my role would be to, to get a reaction out of you, to think, to think a different way that you may not have thought before, to challenge your thinking, to challenge yeah. and to, to get someone to pick up the phone and ring and, and, uh, or to text the show or to tweet or to do, you know, to, to do what you did and DM and, and nearly DM an actor. <laughs> I didn't, but I nearly did. <laughs> As I said, I'm, I'm not there for the clickbait headlines. I, I get that and I understand that's the criticism you get. I'm, I'm not the one sitting there posting on social media with a link. You know, that, that's not my role to do that. If Fox Footy want to pick up on something I say and, and use it as click, that's fine. That's that's the world we live yep. in. I understand it. But it's not my role. My role is to be passionate about what I say, to truly believe in it and be willing to, if Matthew Lloyd says to me, no, that's wrong, I disagree with you, or to Tony Jones say, no, that's wrong, Kane, uh, to be able to come back at him with a considered argument as to why I'm saying that. So it's not as he's just saying such and such, you know, is is letting his team down. And then not be prepared to say why. So you you got to be you can't just fly off the handle with opinions that you can't back up. But it's interesting your point. I'm not, I'm sure you've consumed the Rewatchables podcast. Um, yes. Yes. So they they did a terrific one on Die Hard. So Die Hard's my favourite movie, and they rewatched that. There was four of them, and they go through the movie. If you haven't seen the Rewatchables, I I urge you to check it out. It's amazing. Um, and they spoke about the villain in the movie, Hans Gruber. I'm not sure the actor's name, but Hans Gruber is his name. He's no longer with us. But they, at the end of each movie, they speak about who won the movie. So you've got the superhero, Bruce Willis. Obvious answer is that he won, he won the movie. But then there's the debate, well, no, I reckon Hans Gruber won the movie because without the villain, Hans Gruber, you wouldn't have had the reaction that you got. Now, I'm not... That's what you. That's what you're about. Yeah. It's the chemistry of of that, and that was the reaction that, that you caused. Not not to say that I want to be the villain all the time. I, I don't, and I don't thrive on being hated or being polar. I, I don't. I don't enjoy being. No one does. But you know, you've got to have that balance. That's what makes good TV and entertainment. There's one statement that I don't know if you would want to take back, but again, you already probably know what I'm alluding to here. It's one that has come up a lot. And I'll probably name my first son after this man. Is there anything you have to say about what you said about Sam Walsh? Because that has come back a little bit at the moment. You'd say he is he is one of the best players in the AFL. And are you even are you even going to go to the stage where you think you've reverse psychology him into actually being the best player in the AFL? Uh, so you make some calls, you get them wrong. I got that one wrong. <laughs> Can I defend myself just a, just a small bit? So this is this is the world we're in. My my comments about Sam Walsh and uh, I got firstly I got it wrong. I'm not I'm not defending. I just want to give an insight. I said Sam Walsh is going to be a great player. He's going to play 250 to 300 games. He's going to be a multiple best and fairest, multiple Australian. That was the first statement I said about Sam. And if if I just said that, everyone would go oh, okay. Yeah, he's cool, pretty accurate right now. <laughs> I got into trouble with the butt. So then I went on. This is the, this is the, how far do you take it? Your opinion is at 5%, is at 20, is at 30. I've gone 40% too far here. And I got, I said, but Carlton got the pick wrong. They went safe with pick one. 
I don't think Sam uh, Sam Walsh is going to be a match winner. He's a smaller midfielder. Not sure how well he uses the ball. Da 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 da. All these reasons why he's not going to be great. And Connor Rose, he's going to be this, 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 and this. It was it was too early a call on a young player. It was a great lesson not to judge young players too early. Uh, this was before he played ten games that I said this this call. So it was a r- ridiculous thing to say because I hadn't watched him enough and I didn't understand. I've spoken to a couple of Carlton people from the inside about that. And they said to me, you're wrong on that because he's the most competitive player I've ever seen. And he will will himself to be great regardless of his size of the things that you say will work against him to be that player. So you're wrong. Um, and all you can do is put your hand up and say you're wrong. I, I admire him more than any player in the game now. And I said that earlier on in the year on footy classified. So I regret going so hard on a young player for judging him prematurely. I never said he wasn't going to be great, um, but it was the the limiting factors that I put on him that I had no knowledge about um, him working himself into be one of the, the best midfielders we've seen and achieve things that you know, not many have achieved in his first two or three seasons. Yeah, he's he's an incredible, incredible character. Phenomenal. No, we, we're looking forward to seeing the rest of him. But I, I think in a way, if anything, maybe take a bit of credit in the fact that he's done it in spite of those comments. It could be a, a big game changer. To put your hand up and say you got it wrong. Like I've had so many... Carlton people say, oh, good on you for doing that. Like, we, yeah. we, you've been hard on us, but we respect you more that you put your hand up. So I actually have no issue. If I get an opinion wrong, you're wrong. Like, there's, there's, no, there's no hiding it. I said when Richmond uh, recruited Dion Prestia at the end of the 2016 season, I said, they're ridiculous. They're giving up a top 10 pick to get Dion Prestia because they're not in the premiership window. Why, would you, why wouldn't you go to the draft with that pick and start to regenerate the group? Well, how ridiculous. Like he's a three-time, he's the best and fairest winner in a premiership year. And Richmond have been the greatest team in the last five years. I got that wrong. And I'm happy to I'm I'm happy to say I look foolish. Um, you just hope you get more right than wrong. But and I think that's actually what's prevalent today is is the vulnerability, is the accountability that you have going. On. I'd like to see it in more journalists because I think it does actually humanize people a little bit when you when you do say it. It's I don't know if you've seen this or if you've if you've used this analogy or even if it is part of your um your ideology and what you do, but have you heard, you've seen eight mile with Eminem? I have. Yeah. You know, at the end of the rap battle where he comes in and he says, basically every single thing that is wrong with him or every single thing he's ever fucked up in his life and then gets to the end and people actually don't know what to say. Cause he's just disarmed himself with everything. Yeah. I, I haven't, well, I haven't thought about it. I, I haven't, but like the best, it's, it's sort of true in anything. Like the best comedians are the ones that take the piss out of themselves. I reckon. Like self-deprecating humor is something that Australians love. Um, and it's a technique that you can use. It's not used a lot because it, it's it's hard to do. It's a little bit like what Eminem did in that instance where, well, I've said everything's bad about me. Whatever comes from someone I don't know on social media is not really going to make a dent, is it? Yeah. Well, I feel like that's what you've you've done. You've touched on those things. Like you, you speak openly about the fire fighting thing that everyone loves to to team in with you about. The fact that you were you look back and you could have been more um, selfless as a player. You sort of, if you're accountable for things that you're not proud of, I think is what I'm trying to say. And this is just not a lesson for for us. It's a lesson for anyone. If you can just embrace that, proud of it, put your hand up, say, "Yep, I fucked up." 
you, you literally got a free slate on anything. People can't, they have nothing to say anymore. It's like the, the bully. It's like people say to me, what the fuck are you doing? You played 40 games here. It's like, yeah, I know. I was shit, but I've like moved on and I'm doing something different now. And they're like, okay, sweet. It's not something I've consciously thought about, but um, I have seen you do it um, and, you know, take, I don't know. I, I, I don't agree with you, with your take on your career. Because I think anyone that gets to the level um, had a significant amount of talent and it's a significant achievement. But I do agree with your opinion on, on that. I'm going to go back and watch uh, Eight Mile though. Yeah, get back and watch Eight Mile. There's a lot of life lessons. I, I, I think that my biggest uh, weakness slash strength in life is taking life lessons out of things that are not meant to be life lessons. I think I read into things way too much than what we should. Um, but again, I'm not sure if it's a weakness or a strength. Hey, I want to talk about this, mate, because this is a big part, and I know you've, you've been really generous with your time, but to, to finish up, the the big part of your career um, in, in media and something that genuinely gets my heart pumping as we even talk about it is these big calls that you make, it comes with a lot of backlash. It comes with a lot of social online abuse. It comes with dealing with some people that aren't happy with what you say. How do you separate the person from the persona? How do you deal with what comes through to your inbox? Because as we said before, as players, they read the paper and you can you can say you don't read the paper, but at some stage, you're going to be reading these comments. And I don't, personally, it's got to have an effect on me. Yeah, I would be lying to say if it didn't. So what I will say, I've got a lot better at dealing with it. So just just very boring little things that I do. If I ever see anything on, on, so Facebook's really dangerous. If I ever see anything on Facebook, Kane Corden said this or whatever, it's 95% going to be negative. Like the comments are going to be, you know, fine and what, all the stuff that, that you mentioned that we've spoken about today. So I, I don't read anything on Facebook that has a link to me. I never, never go into the comments on Twitter. You see a bit of stuff, but like in, in the mentions on Twitter, I'll just I'll just hit, I'll just scroll up. So there's the mentions there. I'll just, I'll just scroll to the top. So I will never go through who's, like these are all people that have, as you know, how Twitter works. I'll just never read them usually. Um, this is a couple of boring things that I do, but it's not easy. Like I like wake thinking about what did I say there? What's going to be the backlash tomorrow? Who's going to have a crack back? Like it's, it's all encompassing as footy was. Um, so I don't think you'll ever get used to it. As I said, it's not nice not to be liked. I think everyone's starting position is is to be is to be liked. But a couple of quotes, you know, you don't um, you don't take criticism from from people you wouldn't ask advice from. Just just little things like that. It's like probably the person that's tweeting me right now is a big fat dude sitting in a basement eating a bowl of chips. Like that's how yeah. I process it in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like this guy that said that, particularly the really nasty ones, I can't see you. You're probably anonymous. So I just think, okay, I picture him as this big fat dude with nothing to get up for out of it, with a bowl yeah. of chips sitting in his basement, tweeting me from his phone. With a Holden Commodore as his uh, display picture. Yeah, not to be nasty or anything. That's just how I picture it in my head because who knows who this person is? So don't, so don't let them get to you because you just don't know who said. I guess the hard ones are when a player comes back. So if yes. I've said something about they're, – they're the difficult ones. So if I've said something about Jack Revolt um, on a Monday night, he'll go on AFL 360 on a Tuesday night and he'll have last right of reply. And, and they're the ones that you think, oh, gee, uh, what's he going to say? Because yeah. their opinion holds a bit more weight. Or a former teammate that you played with. 
um, you know, if you have to be critical of a player, how's that going to be received? Or your club. I know Ken Hinckley was really upset with some criticism I had over his coaching against Geelong in a game they lost earlier at the Adelaide Oval. He was, he was ropeable. He didn't come to me with it, but it got back to me that there are some pretty strong language coming from Ken towards, towards me. And that's hard because you've got a relationship with this guy. You really respect him. You rate him and he's, he's upset. But do you do you reach out in that case? Like, does it, has it ever ruined relationships for you, or do you do you get like the maturity come through with the relationship, and you, you get on the phone and, and call up? I think there was a bit of damage done um, between myself and Travis Boke at, at one point, dating back a few years ago. I was reasonably close with Boke when we played. I, I said something in the media early days when I started in the media. They'd moved him to a half forward flank, and I said, "Yeah, I'm not sure it's looking good for Boke if they've shifted him out of the midfield." You know where where to next, or words to that effect, and he he didn't like it, and I and I know why because he's like, well, hang on, I just played with you last year or the year before, now you're off there in the media having a crack at me about my role, and that did a bit of damage to the to the relationship. It's never been the same since. Um, you know, we've since spoken, and I text him you know, semi regularly and congratulated him on his 300, but it hasn't been the same. Similarly with Ollie Wines, I was quite critical of Ollie um, when he was water skiing. And he hurt his shoulder, which ruined his season. I was like, what, what is an AFL player doing water skiing and wrecking their shoulder? He hated that. His family hated it. And the relationship's probably not been the same since. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's brutal, isn't it? Like there's some things you say you can't take back. Not that, I disagree, not that I disagree with what I said. I believed it, as I said at the time. But yeah, it's hard when, when people you know more so than just your average troll on Twitter. Yeah. And we speak about um, one last one on that, just that – it's absolutely made my life this one that um, came through. There was a, there was a clip one day on on um, on the Sunday Footy Show, and it was of Mark Murphy going for a, a ball. And I think you said Mark Murphy could have dived harder for this. Now I'm not talking about the specific clip, but one of my good mates who I played footy with, Nicky Graham, actually tweeted back to the Sunday <laughs> Footy Show saying Kane would have been in the grandstand with that push. Now you came back to Nick, and I think. You said, Nick, it's a little bit, I think it's about time to update the profile and the display picture, mate, into which has given me the most happiness I've had in my life for about the last two years. So I just want to personally thank you for that one. Change the profile, Mr. Fence, because I think he has a crack every hour. From time to time, I see I laugh. Um, look, he's passionate about the club, isn't he? Um, but he, he, he did leave the playing profile picture up for about, I don't know. I think it was two years too long. Two years too long. I reckon. <laughs> Time to move on, Nick. I'm glad you finally here. <laughs> Mate, you don't understand how happy that made me and uh, how, how happy it still makes me today. But that was one of the all-times. He was very quiet on Twitter for a few months after that and was going through the rebranding phase of, of the page. So He left it for a while, but uh, no, it's, it's all good fun. I mean, it's a game of footy, isn't it, in the end? Oh, fuck, that was good. And uh, I thank you for that. So hopefully you guys can pick up your relationship soon on, online. Mate, to finish off, I can't go... Um, I, it'd be remiss of me not to get some of the calls off the biggest... Uh, Media star in the game to finish off the season. Now, I haven't worded you up about this, but I'm hoping you have some opinions. Who wins the Brownlow medal this year? I think Bontempelli will win it. I think he deserves to win it. I think he's been the most... I think he's the best player in the game. Um, so th- th- there's my... He is the best footballer in the game right now, and I hope he's rewarded with the Brownlow medal. Um, who wins the premiership? Uh, I think Melbourne's game is in the best order. Like across the... I think that... So I have the most confidence in the way they're playing. Um 
I don't want to sit on the fence. So I'm going to say Melbourne. Like it. I was against it until, until they went and won it along last week. week. I think that, that is one of the biggest things that's happened for that footy club for a long time. You saw the passion that Petrarca had when he spoke about it after the game, which was, was pretty special. And there's something uncanny about Max Gorn kicking that goal after the siren when he, I suppose, copped a lot of flack for missing one against Geelong, I'm pretty sure it was, you know, a few years earlier, um, which is exciting. So, so if, Matt, if, if Melbourne are winning Premiership, who's got the Norm Smith? Uh, Clayton Oliver is a player that has proven me wrong. So I'm, I'm happy to call it. I remember speaking about Clayton Oliver. I was like, yeah, he gets a lot of it, doesn't he? And he, you know, he's, his resume looks good, but gee, he wastes the footy. He's a player, I respect guys that identify weaknesses in their game, go away and work on it. And now he's complete. Like his running power, his fitness, you can tell has improved. He's, he looks hard. He, you know, he's, he's not... His skin folds, wouldn't, I reckon, they would have been a bit higher just looking at him. The eye test would tell you that. But he looks like streamlined, hard, super fit. He's tough. And now he goes forward and kicks goals. So on the big stage, finals footy, I reckon, is going to suit him. So let's say Clayton Oliver. Love it. Kane, I honestly cannot thank you enough for coming on the show, mate. To finish up, I just always ask my guests, what is next for you, my friend? Um, you alluded to something earlier that really pricked my ears up pretty high. And it was talking about the podcasting game in the US, do you see yourself moving into this space? What is the role for you? What, where do you see yourself going? Yeah, I've got big plans. I you know, I would be lying if I say I didn't have big amb- ambitions, probably to make it um, a bit bigger in, in Melbourne. So whether there's whether there's a move to Melbourne um, on the cards or not, I, I do enjoy hosting as well. So you know, hosting own radio shows and, and hopefully one day hosting, you know, Rather than just being a panelist, being able to host in your own right a, a TV show like a, a Classified or a you know Sunday Footy Show, I'm not saying I'm not trying to get get, get rid of anyone, but yeah, that's just the two shows that I'm on. To be able to host in, in your own right, and then it's less reliant on you know being the opinion guy, but you can also bring in others and make them look better. So that that would be something that I'm really interested in. But yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I'm I'm happy doing what I'm doing at the moment, but. Um, yeah, looking forward to having some big ambitions to to perhaps make it a bit bigger in, in Melbourne. Huge, mate. I absolutely love it. I've got no doubt you're going to tick those boxes. And, um, yeah, mate, this is the first time we've obviously met today, but I, I really can't thank you enough for your openness and, and honesty and, and your time. You've been extremely generous. And, yeah, I really, really uh, blessed to have you on the show, mate. So thank you so much. A lot of fun, mate. I, I it felt like... Yeah, too, mate. So the first time I've, I've spoken, look forward to one day actually catching up. But we, we had plans to do that. So sorry that hasn't eventuated. But worldwide pandemics do that type of thing. Looking forward <laughs> to meeting in person and, and catching up. I appreciate you having me on. If that wasn't enough for you and you want even more, you're in luck. Dylan Friends is now on Patreon. Dylan Best Friends. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you like the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.